So, uh, as I said, um, Paul has written to uh, Timothy, and uh, he's now getting to some uh, specific circumstance, which um, they have kind of some broad applications. Uh, they, they are very specific uh, regarding widows and uh, different things within the church, but then there's broader application and broader understanding of, of what's being said here. So in verse 1, you know, Paul, as the teacher, is saying to Timothy, the younger pastor, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. So, you know, he tells us elsewhere that as church leaders, it's it's the responsibility and the necessity at times of the pastor to rebuke people, literally uh, to say harsh things, even with volume. You know, the, the church has lost uh, this concept of, of what needs to be done uh, regarding God's word. The fear of God is uh, no longer part of the church in a lot of places. And I think it's very necessary at times to uh, put that into place. I think that there's a lot of times where it's not necessary um, to put that into place. Um, here, uh, what he's telling this young pastor is, when it comes to someone that's older than you, you need to have enough respect to not you know, chew them out in a way that would be disrespectful. You might need to say something to them, uh, but at the same time, you need to speak to them in such a way that uh, you know shows that you are respectful of their seniority. Uh, I've had a handful of occasions where I've had to do this. You know, men who were older than me, but uh, you know they're claiming to be Christians and yet doing things that they need to be corrected for. And so, when you speak to them, uh, got to have respect and uh, you know honor their dignity and not try to embarrass them in the process. There's, there's a, you know, sort of a natural course of respect that's um, being taught by Paul to Timothy in the situation. He goes on to say, but exhort him as a father. So you have that, you know, good relationship. I know there are terrible fathers, uh, but you know, he's saying, you know, as far as, you know, Timothy has a good father and he's saying, you know, the way that you would speak to your dad if you needed to correct him, that's that's how I want you to speak to... Oh, thanks, brother. That's how I want you to speak uh, to anyone in the church that's older than you. If you need to correct them, do it in a way that respects uh, who they are. Now, keeping that respectful tone, he addresses Timothy in how to address younger men as brothers. So if you've got to speak to someone and correct someone, uh, then you need to speak to them as a brother. Um, I have, well, uh, my oldest brother is with the Lord now. Uh, he's passed away, but um, yeah, I'm the youngest of three. Uh, my middle brother, I have two good brothers in my life, uh, men who, uh, you know, they, they deserve a degree of respect. And so, you know, as far as addressing someone goes, uh, the thing that I 
try to do that I take from this is when talking to people to really understand that I'm definitely not better than anybody else. And I look for the ways that I can talk to someone from my own struggles. So, you know, if, if I'm, you know, dealing with someone and let's just say their sin and uh, I have to talk to them, I usually talk from the position of my own struggle and my own sin and the things that I've had to deal with, identifying with them. So rather than talking down to someone, going from the position of almost talking up to them, you know, talking to them in a way that you know puts me in a lower position. I've done terrible things, been in terrible places, and uh, who am I if I've got to correct someone to speak to them as though I haven't been that way? So you know, respectfulness. Then he says in uh, verse two, still in this issue of addressing people within the church, older women as mothers. Um, you know, that's all of these situations, you guys, as a pastor, I can tell you that at times, you, you know, you would think that, you know, a woman who is old enough to where you would consider her, you know, she's motherly, you know, you're, you are, you know, she's of that age where if I'm going to address her, she's old enough to where I should refer to her in a motherly way. And you would think like, well, you would never have to rebuke one of these people. Well, I mean, I've had to deal with some pretty bizarre situations where even older women, you know, are caught up in things that need to be corrected. When you have to do that as a pastor, once again, you know, doing it in a respectful manner, speaking to them in a way that you know, demonstrates that you don't consider yourself better than them uh, this is you know again you know you could look at it like a professor paul a doctor instructing his student and teaching him how to handle very particular situations and then younger women as sisters with all purity uh, very necessary that that would be the case i uh, i'm astonished at the number of pastors that get themselves into situations with younger women. I mean, I know it's possible even, you know, for someone such as myself, but I, I mean, there's a certain level of honesty that you have to face. I'm, you know, if some super attractive woman half my age is suddenly flinging herself at me, uh, I know that's demonic. Because there's no way, naturally, she would be attracted to me. You know, I mean, come on. You know, I know who I am. And to me, it's absurd when a pastor who's that much older is looking at the situation going, well, of course she's attracted to me. You know, no, it, it doesn't make any sense. There's something desperately wrong here, and you're being set up in a trap. Why can't you... You know, recognize this. To me, there's a level of arrogance. I'm, I'm bringing it up. If you're thinking, oh, well, that's kind of inappropriate to the verses where with all purity. You know, if you've got someone who's a younger woman as a pastor who's young enough, you know, that you would treat her as a sister or a daughter, 
and there's no purity in how you're dealing with her, something's desperately wrong with you as a pastor. It needs to be that it would be. I'm astonished. You know, I see these men who've destroyed their ministries with some young woman, and, you know, of of course there's going to come a moment where the spell gets lifted off from her mind and she realizes who she's actually with. And then the tables are going to turn and the families are going to be destroyed and the church is going to get wrecked. And why can't, you know, people understand the trap that's being set in the situation Uh, here? Very practical applications as far as how to deal with very specific situations in the church. And you can take all of these uh, and do broad applications as to how pastors should act. One of the most unfortunate things is we have to look at this and recognize every one of these things is being violated in the church today. You know, young men are, you know, on the internet speaking disrespectfully of older men of the faith. You know, we have, you know, younger men who are being rude and crass with their brothers. And, you know, misbehaving in such ways that, you know, now that people are confused, they're watching, you know, on the Internet what is supposed to be the church and what is supposed to be pastors. And they're thinking, really? So so it's okay to swear and curse, and you know, get drunk and, you know, as a pastor, misbehaving in ways that very practical applications, if they were followed, would leave the church in a way where it was being respectful and doing what it needs to. Now, this second uh, section that he gets into in verse three, when he says, honor widows who are really widows, uh, two elements within it. Uh, the term uh, honor is timao, a, uh, the idea of placing a value upon uh, to care for financially, literally, materially. So what he's talking about is paying their bills and housing them and feeding them. And he's going to talk about the specifics of how to care for widows. This is Paul giving Timothy and the church throughout history guidelines as to how we should be behaving with welfare, uh, what should be done. The first portion of the thing is honor, you know, care for financially, physically, materially, widows who are really widows. And you think, like, were there people that were, like, faking it? Um, no. It's, he gives us the definition for what is meant by a true widow. Uh, he's going to talk about how, uh, you know, they need to have been married once. They need to have been Uh, over 60 years old. They need to be people that are presently already working for the church. So you take care of those. So we'll look at the specifics of what he means by those that actually fit the definition of widows and what it is that this young pastor Timothy is supposed to do with them. Honor widows who are really widows. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, Let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents. 
let their household family take care of them first. You know, if, if a widow comes to the church and says, you know, I need somebody to help me with my rent. I need somebody to help me with food. He's saying to Timothy as a pastor, it's your responsibility to find out if they have family. Um, maybe uh, she is feeling awkward about the fact that, you know, she can't ask her kids. And, and maybe it is that, you know, Timothy as the pastor needs to talk to her, encourage her, and maybe even go with her to the children or the grandchildren and say, hey, are, are you aware that, you know, your dear, you know, family member, this, you know, grandmother or mother is in need because pride might be keeping her from asking them. And he's saying you need to do this. You need to make sure that the children, the grandchildren are the ones who are first asked. Um, the church today does not do this by and large. Somebody comes to the church, asks for money. The church by and large just does whatever they can do. There's some guidelines here and he explains why. So let them repay their parents for this is good and acceptable before God. Now she who is really a widow and left alone trusts in God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. So now you've got the second stage of the qualification. One, is she, if she is truly a widow, then she first has no family to care for her. He just said she's left alone. Check kids, grandkids, no one. You have no one to care for you. So she's alone and in need of this level of care. Then secondly, she already continues in supplication and prayers night and day. So she's already a woman who is praying and caring for the spiritual needs of the church. This, this needs to already be a qualification, right? If a person is not already a person of prayer and they show up and say, I'm in need of financial assistance, it would be bizarre to say, well, um, if you start praying for us, then we'll start paying you. They need to already be a person who is praying night and day for the body of Christ. But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives, dead in her sins. This is what Jesus said. It's what uh, Paul and the apostles reiter reiterate, that if we are people that pursue sinful pleasures, then we're spiritually dead. Here he's saying, if some woman comes and basically says, I can't pay my rent because I've been out uh, drinking all week, um, it really doesn't matter that your husband has passed away. If you're taking whatever resources you have and you're pursuing the sinful appetites of your flesh, then the church isn't responsible for then taking care of your bills. You know, there needs to be some serious accountability in this. Uh, you would not believe the number of people, especially here, Acadia National Park is here. They come to town and get the phone book out and open up to the churches and they just start calling churches. Um, uh, my family and I, we've traveled from, 
you know, East Overshoe and our car has broken down and the kids don't have any food. And is there anything that you can do? And, and if you say yes, great. And they have whatever degree of conversation they need to have with you. Um, if not, they hang the phone up and they call the next church and the next church and, and listen to me. Uh, I have told people on the phone, uh, you know, if we're going to help you, these are, this is our outline. This is our requirement. One, you got to fill out this form and uh, we'll see what your need is and we'll see what we can do. I get off the phone with them and while I'm getting ready to like go meet with them, I get a phone call and it's them again and they don't realize, see, cause they're calling so many churches. They call, they don't get through. They call, they get through, they call, they don't get through. They call, they get through. They've been through. So they go back through not remembering who they've spoken to. Now they're talking to me again and they're telling me their whole story again. Yeah. We just talked. I'm on my way to you. I'm bringing you a form. You arrive there while I'm there at their hotel room like trying to you know help them out you know the beers out on the counter they're smoking their cigarettes the phone book is open they're answering phone calls of churches that are calling them back you know they're hitting everybody in line for you know can you just take care of my situation you know if we got rid of that beer and we got rid of those cigarettes We'd automatically have 10 or 15 or 20 bucks toward your need, toward what your circumstances are. Instead, they're looking for us to take care of. If that sounds judgmental, here's the scripture, you know, inspired by the Holy Spirit, telling us to be cautious of situations like this. No, that's offensive to you. What if they were calling your house and asking you to pay their bills, Right. I mean, you just got done working. You got your measly little paycheck. You're trying to take care of your family and your kids. And now somebody has gone on vacation, gotten themselves in a financial bind, and they're calling you. They're just going through the phone book alphabetically, and you're just next. Taking advantage of people. We need to use caution and take care of the people who aren't just cruising around in their sinful pleasures looking for handouts. These things command that they may be blameless. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So back to the subject of family. If, if the family isn't taking care of them, if their loved ones aren't going to take care of them, then they actually need, if they especially claim to be believers, they need to be held accountable. You know, if, if there's a woman within the church, that generally means usually their family is of the church. And what? Now their family from the church is sending them to the church that the church could take care of them. It needs to be that the family would be the first line to take care of. Now, I'll tell you this. It, some people get offended when I preach like this and preach on this subject, but uh, I grew up with a widow. My father was killed when I was very young and my mother took care of my two older brothers and myself as a widow for her whole life and now she's 83 years old and I take care of her I've had to live out both ends of this you know she was very independent 
you know, I remember where we reached a point where, you know, it was time for her to go back to school. She had been an LPN for years, but had been out of nursing for years and went back and got her nursing certificate again. And, you know, so while she's caring for us, she's going to school at night and then going to work as a charge nurse in nursing homes and making sure that we're fed. She's taking care of her own family. At no point is she walking around asking for someone for a handout. We saw the Lord take care of us, widows and orphans, in our home, but it wasn't ever that she was there saying somebody else needs to be responsible for what is mine. She was taking care of her own household. She was feeding us, and as we move on in the explanation, all of the other areas, I watched her fulfill these things in her life also. So, verse 9, do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. So, two portions here. The age limitation, he's going to talk about how the younger widows need to be remarried if possible. But the idea of 60 years old, he's saying from the position of they can still fend for themselves. They can sh still work. This is the idea of, is the church going to pick up the tab? You know, a lot of times what ended up happening is in this setting, these families would end up living at wherever the church was. They, they were given a room and they stayed in the church and they cared for the church. So what was coming into the church was feeding them and caring for them. Life was a lot simpler than it is today. You know, you didn't need to have internet and, you know, their own car and, you know, these different things. They cared for the needs of the church. They made sure that, the, you know, the church was set up for people that were coming in to worship. They were doing the work that was, you know, the work of the church. And thereby, the church was caring for their needs, this communal type living. Anyone that was under the age of 60 years old could also go and work in the community. So the church wouldn't be burdened by it. And he specifically says that uh, as we get towards the end of this passage. Here, if they're under 60 years old, they need to continue to fend for themselves. And the church can help them do that. But they need to not be dependent upon the church. Notice what he says in the second portion of you know, she's been the wife of one man. This isn't to say uh, that, you know, if she's had more than one husband, they're not going to care for her. It's the idea of she shouldn't be a woman who's been married and divorced and married and divorced and married and divorced and then became a widow and now is asking the church to take care of her. You know, it's the idea that uh, if she's a woman who is just going from man to man and then shows up and says, oh, I need the church to take care of me. And the church needs to be cautious of taking someone in like that. Verse 10, well reported for good works. If she has brought up children, and there's an explanation within that. If she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted if she has diligently followed every good work well reported for good works start there um she's not a woman like he's going to contrast this in just a minute 
who, you know, he, he's going to say she shouldn't be a gossip and a busybody. You know, when, you know, someone's been taken in, she's over 60 years old, the church now taking care of her, and, you know, people find out the church is taking care of her, everybody's like, oh, you know, Sally so-and-so, great. Now the church is taking care of her. She, if she's a person who has a bad reputation, uh, particularly of taking advantage of the church in this way, then Paul is saying you shouldn't be taking them in. It isn't just, you know, someone who, uh, you know, the community doesn't like. It's the idea literally of if they already have a reputation of taking advantage of people, the church should not be taking them in. Um, you know, we've unfortunately received phone calls a couple of different times from police department and churches telling us, hey, um, if these people call you needing assistance, just know that, you know, we've already had to deal with them. You know, we had a call a few summers ago now. Uh, police department called up and said, uh, you know, there's a family that has already been through uh, Newport, Bangor, Brewer, and is now down here in the area, and they are just going through the churches and trying to get people to support them. So if they call you, be aware that uh, you know that they're already in trouble with the, the law and churches. And um, you know, it's kind of interesting. We've never had the, the law, you know, actually had police force call us. What was really weird is I get a phone call like three days later um, and well, I should get a call from the police department about them. Then I get a call from the family. They're down in Bar Harbor and they're calling around asking churches to pay their hotel bill. And uh, I might've gotten schnookered, but I'd already gotten a phone call from the police department. So I said, no, uh, we're not going to do it. You know, you guys have already, your reputation has preceded you. So we're not going to do it. And I get a phone call a few days later from the police department at the hotel and they're saying hey we're here now with this family and they're telling us uh that you have agreed to pay their hotel bill um you know they've got three days that they've racked up here so we we know they probably you know don't have that but we just wanted to call and verify you know are you willing to pay their bill and i said no unfortunately we're not so so they're you know real criminal in their behavior it's that sense of well reported of for good works. You know, the contrast. The church wants to take care of people who are, in fact, well reported of, not those who are ill reported of. If your bad reputation precedes you, probably the church shouldn't be taking care of you. If she has brought up children, uh, notice it doesn't say if she has brought up her children. Does it say that in your Bible? Right? It says if she has brought up children. In Rome and throughout this region of Rome, it was very common for people to just abandon infants that they didn't want in public places. So literally take the baby, put them in a basket, go to the park and just leave them there. Um, you know, sometimes if people were... Gracious, they would leave them in a public place. Often, 
in this day and age, they would literally take these children into the wilderness and just leave them. They, they called it exposing the children, exposing them to death. Just leave them abandoned to die. And it, it was, I mean, it's, it was very common in, in this day. I hate to say it this way, but it was a form of birth control. That's how they treated it. Don't want this child and just take it out sometimes as soon as it was born and just leave it somewhere to die. Christians would uh, gather them. If, if people found them, they knew to take them to churches and take them to Christians because Christians would take children in like this. And this is part of what's being said here. If she has brought up children. She's a widow. She has a heart for what it means to suddenly be alone and have no one to take care of her. So she hears of a child who has no family and she takes the child in. Has she raised children? Is she one of these sorts of women who's well reported of for good works, who has brought up children, perhaps not even her own is, you know, definitely what's being implied if she has lodged strangers, you know, people that are in need, that find themselves in the community because their car broke down and they're just down on their luck. They're not taking advantage of people, but has she taken in strangers and taken care of them? If she has washed the saints' feet, we shouldn't think of that. There's, you know, the example of Jesus washing the apostles' feet and now today, the church in, I guess, sort of rare denominations, they have foot washing ceremonies. I find that very strange, um, you know, that we would get together and wash one another's feet. Uh, in the day uh, of, you know, Jesus culture, it was very common. And, and honestly, it was more to do with you. You're going to have guests over. You're going to wash their feet when they arrive at your house. The reason you're going to wash your, their feet is so that you can enjoy yourself, <laughs> right? Because showers are very uncommon. Bathing was very uncommon. Um, Open-toed sandals were very common. And the livestock uh, roamed around in the streets with everybody else. So you're going to end up literally with poop on your feet. Not a little, a fair amount. Your, your feet are going to, I mean, if you've ever owned a pair of Tiva sandals, okay, uh, you know those things can get downright ugly. Um, you know, my first experience with that, I'm just going for the graphic now. The first pair of Tevas I ever had, I ever owned, you know, get in uh, the car after spending the day at the beach, and I'm thinking, like, wow, what is that smell? And it's my feet, you know what I'm saying? And I've got to stop and like get a bottle of water and wash my own feet off. I, I want to go all the way with this grossness if I can. Okay, so they ate at what was called the triclinium, so a horseshoe-shaped table, and you would lay down uh, with a few pillows under your left armpit, your left shoulder, and you would eat with your right hand from the table. Right. Well, the guy right behind you is lying down the same way, and his feet are somewhere near the back of your head and shoulders. And your feet are near the back and head of someone else's shoulders, and you're trying to eat. 
So if you're going to have guests over, you wash their feet. Okay? Usually in a house that had any help at all in it, the, the lowest servant washed the feet of the guests that were coming in the house. Jesus gives us that beautiful example when they have the Last Supper that he washes the apostles' feet to demonstrate, right? Because they've all been arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus says, uh, you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, then you've got to be the servant of everyone. So Jesus takes a position of, I'll wash your feet so that we can all share this meal together and enjoy one another's company. Here, he's saying, if she's going to be a widow that's going to be put on the church payroll, she needs to have already demonstrated that she's willing to be the lowest servant. She's willing to care for people's most humble needs, to have washed feet in the process, maybe even literally washed saints' feet. If she has relieved the afflicted, so people that have been persecuted for their faith, people that have been sick, people that have gone through terrible times and difficult struggles. Has she already demonstrated to you that she's a person that cares for those people? These are the qualifications, right? Not the person who has packed their family up in their car and come to Acadia National Park and is now saying, everybody else needs to buy my fuel and pay for my hotel bill and buy my food so that I can have a vacation with my family. The, the people that need to be cared for by the church need to be people who have already demonstrated to you that they are genuine in their faith and caring for other people. If she has been, if she has diligently followed every good work, oh, if there's any other good work we could describe, what other thing could we throw in here and, and say it is good, right, and proper? Again, my mother is probably even watching online and I'll just embarrass her. This is Sheila Cass. This is what I witnessed growing up. You know, huge garden, giving all of the vegetables away to everyone that's in need. People need a place to stay, come and stay at our house. You know, got school teachers that are part of child evangelism fellowship that are traveling all over the state of Maine and teaching Bible studies in all the public schools converts the backside of our garage into an apartment so that they can stay there and work out of there in order to go and minister the gospel to other people. I witnessed this in the life of my own widow mother as she was raising us. You know, I grew up rebelling against all that. One of was a worldly, sinful punk criminal. Part of what brought me back to the Lord was having been raised in the sincerity of faith like this that I had witnessed. Watching her live this out. She's already doing the good works that the church would be doing. You know, you think about this, right? You know, if you're going to hire somebody uh, into your business, right? You know, um, Alexis has the spa, right? I've built towers. Uh, I've worked in tree crews. I've done a lot of construction. Um, all of my experience is non-spa work. You know what I'm saying? I'm not the guy that you would want to hire. You know, can probably be super polite and answer phones and, you know, I don't know, make appointments. That's probably the best thing I could do for a spa. But as far as everything else, not at all. Not, not even inside my realm of function. 
you know, you want to put me to work in any of those other areas that I've worked in? Yeah, telecommunications and towers and construction and, you know, all, you know, demolition. I've done a lot of other things I'd be useful for in those environments. You're going to bring somebody into the church. You want to make sure that their mindset, if you're going to be supporting them, caring for them, they're, they're already thinking the way the church should be thinking. The, the church, what the church will be doing for work, they need to be people that are about doing the church's work. Um, you know, we have a benevolence fund here. If people are in need, they can call. We've, you know, given lots of people oil, lots of people food, lots of people help. Um, I can tell you right now, uh, the first thing, as I said, we have a form that just says you got to fill out the form and tell us what your need is, why you're in need, and uh, how we can help you. As soon as I tell people that we have a form, 80% of them, all set, done. End of the discussion. They say, hi, I'm in need. I want whatever it is they want. Well, we have a form you have to fill out. Uh, all set, done. Hang up the phone. I'll bring you the form. Not interested. They don't want the form at all. 80, 80% of the people just want the money. They do not want any accountability whatsoever. Tells us what they're really in it for, and that's just the free lunch. Verse 11, but refuse the younger widow. So under 60 years old, and you, and you know that's just sort of the starting place cutoff point. I mean, if somebody comes in and they're 55 years old, Paul's not going to say, hey, come back and see us in five years. You know what I'm saying? I mean, they're, they're, he's just putting a parameter in place. Refuse the younger widows. For when they have begun to grow wanton against Christ, and he explains that, they desire to marry. All of the work that he just described that they would want them to do within the church, there's going to come a point if they're a younger woman where, eh, I'd really rather have a husband in a home. Paul's saying, let's help you get over your grief of the loss of your husband and get you to that point. So, having grown wanton against Christ, the work of the church, the things he's describing, they desire to marry. Having condemnation because they have cast off their first faith. Oh, yes, I'll come work for the church. I don't ever want to get married again. All I can think about is taking care of the needs of other people. Until six months have passed or a year has passed. And, you know, I really would prefer to get remarried and have children in a home. And, you know, so then they all that they've committed themselves to do for the church. Now they're neglecting that. And besides, they learn to be idle. Right. Uh, you know, a young, vibrant, ambitious young woman suddenly just being taken care of by the church, spending her life in prayer and caring for the needs of the church, would very easily become a person who, frankly stated, is lazy. They, they would be teaching them to be idle, wandering about from house to house, and not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. So again, another set of verses that are anti-Facebook. You know, this is like social media. That's a description of social media. Idle, going from house to house. What are these people doing? And what are these people doing? And what are, I'm astonished to this day, you know, just woke up, you know, post, 
just made coffee, post. You know, just took the dog outside, post. You know, just came back inside, post. You know, just what? And all day long, you know, post after post after post of, I've, I, I need a blow-by-blow blow description of your day. Probably you need a job and probably I need a job. If I've got enough time to sit around and read all of these things, you know, this, this needs to be a faith of work and a faith of you know, proficiency and productivity. You know, this whole aspect of being idle gossips, busybodies, saying things they ought not. Therefore, I desire that the younger widows marry bear children and he's just saying if possible if they want to have homes and families manage the house you know raise their children take care of their homes give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully of the church of christians of the faith it's a it's a really unfortunate thing that you know largely what the the church is known for is everything that we just described you know, all of the other sins that might not be present in the church, one thing that very often the church is known for is gossip. Busybodies, laziness. This should not be the church at all. Industrious is what the church should be hardworking. For some have already turned aside after Satan. If any believing man or woman has widows, let them relieve them. If, if you've got a family matter, member who is a widow that meets these qualifications, Paul is saying you should be taking care of them first. And do not let the church be burdened. It isn't a matter of Paul or Timothy or the church not wanting anything to do with these people. The whole point and ministry of the church is to spread the gospel, to expand the kingdom, to get the word of our faith out to more and more people. If the church is taking its resources and doing nothing but becoming a benevolent uh, you know, organization of welfare, then the, the ministry and the purpose of the gospel is being diminished in the process. In the very beginning of the church, when you're reading through the book of Acts, you read that uh, the early Christians sold everything they had and they all lived together communally. And you read that and you think, well, isn't that kind of neat? You know, if people were in need, they just like they had one big common place they all lived and people sold off their land and they stayed together and they farmed together and they cared for one. That's kind of cool. It was horrible. It, it turned out really bad, okay? I mean, it's recorded in the book of Acts, but that's all it says. They sold all they had, and they lived together having all things in common. If any was in need, they cared for one another's needs. And you go, well, that's neat. Uh, right away, people from outside the church went, what? I don't have to work anymore? I'm going to become a Christian. And they quit their jobs and stopped paying their bills and went and joined the church and said, what time is supper? And in no time, the church was broke and destitute and they're having to go around the other churches and take up collections in order to feed the church in Jerusalem. Because there's a bunch of mooches in the church 
who are taking advantage of the church. God designed us to work and be industrious, and he commands us to do so. It should not be that if a widow has a family, that the church is taking care of them. You know, I understand the social pressures, and if it's necessary, then the church should help that widow go to the family and say, your loved one is in need. How can we help you take care of her? So that the church doesn't have to be burdened by that. And it may relieve those who are really widows. The person who has a family, has resources, let them take care of their loved ones so that if there are really widows who need help, then the church can help those. He then moves into verse 17, where it says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Now, I always get embarrassed when we start talking about this, because to begin with, the term elder is pastor. It's the person who is the overseer of the church. So Paul is talking to Timothy about Timothy's role here in the church that he's serving at and what the church should be doing for him. Uh, we mentioned the fact that in verse 3, it says that the widows who are really widows should be honored. It literally is talking about the valuation, the financial responsibility, and the material needs of the widow and how to care for them. Here, Paul is saying that the pastors who rule well, do a good job of being pastors, should be counted worthy of double pay, is literally what he's saying. It's difficult for me as a pastor to even talk about it. Now, at the moment, it's really easy for me to talk about it, because I don't receive any pay. So, since I can deal with it that simply, that's how easy it is. My heart is to be here in this community and to minister to this community and make sure that uh, you know this community has the word of God taught to them and, and people uh, have the understanding that they need. I work uh, at another job and earn my wages from there so that I can be here and do this work. Uh, but Paul is saying that when someone does minister, they should be paid. In fact, he's saying double pay. Now, I don't hold to that idea necessarily, but what he's saying, I mean, it isn't like a rule, like, okay, what's the standard pay? Okay, 20 bucks an hour. Okay, so pastors get 40. Yeah. That, that's not what he's saying here. That's not what I'm saying. What, what Paul is trying to communicate is that when you have someone who's taking care of the ministry, they should be taken care of by the church if possible. He goes on to say, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. That is what is most significant within the church. We often look at things from the perspective of the physical. You know, who is the person who does, you know, the actual labor? That's the guy you should be paying. And what Paul is saying is, no, actually the person you should be most concerned about caring for financially and, and, you know, don't take any of this the wrong way, you guys. God has provided me with a good job so that I can receive the pay that I need in order that I can be here and minister as I do. It is a blessing of the Lord. Uh, within this setting, he's saying that if they teach the word well, then you should be taking care of them if possible. Verse 18, 
For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's actually taken from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. And it's literally in that setting, talking about uh, the ox that would turn the grinding wheel in order to make flour and turn out meal. And he's saying if, if you're going to have that ox there doing that work, he should be able to eat from the grain that would fall there in front of him naturally, and he would be able to partake of that. Clearly, uh, this is spoken of throughout the scripture in regard to ministers. And it's not, you know, when the scripture recorded that in Deuteronomy, it wasn't, you know, just a rule about oxen and those that turned out the grain. It was, you know, what you put your hand to, to labor and work at, uh, you should be receiving your sustenance back from that, is what he's saying. And then, of course, also, the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's Leviticus 19, verse 13, and Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. So, this idea that ministers should be paid. Um, I can tell you that being a minister is definitely the hardest job I've ever done, without question. Um, I've uh, done a lot of different work over the years. Uh, very first, well, I guess my very first job was mowing lawns, you know, kid, nine years old, my bike, my lawnmower, my gas can, uh, my money. 13 years old, uh, hired into kitchens, working under my brother, started out doing dishes, then prep work, and then line work, and learned kitchens. And How did that work? I've come up through all kinds of different jobs over the years. Uh, some of them really intense. Uh, ministry and being a senior pastor is by far the hardest job I've ever done, without question. You deal with really, really intense things, not just... The troubles that uh, you know you would imagine. It, it's intense to uh, be called into somebody's family as they're bringing a child into the world. It's intense to be called into somebody's life and into their family as uh, they're getting married and dealing with everything that's involved there. It's intense to get called as someone's dying and passing away, as their child is struggling with addiction. As you know, the list is just endless of the things that go on it's very common to get called in the middle of the night and have to go out and do things and then also go and take care of life's normal everyday stuff it's it's an intense job and, and paul is saying that when you have somebody who is the overseer of church they should be cared for in verse 19 it says, do not receive an accusation against an elder. He goes on to say, except from two or three witnesses. Unfortunately, uh, it is very common for people to automatically accept accusations that are made against pastors and teachers and churches. Um, you know, it's, it's remarkable uh, how many times I have heard things that are outright lies about ministers. I've heard outright lies about myself. People didn't realize they were talking about me. But, uh, you know, I was in a shoe store a number of years ago, and someone near me was saying something about 
our church. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, Calvary Chapel and I'm the pastor over there. And the person that was running the shoe store said, oh, Calvary Chapel, I know all about that church. And jokingly, I said, oh, really? Tell me about it. And they went off, man. All completely false. I listened for five minutes or so uh, about myself, things that were completely untrue. And they finally got around to, so what do you do? <laughs> and I said, well, I'm the pastor of the church you've been railing on for the past five minutes. You know, now they backpedal and got all kinds of other explanations for why they said the things that they said. All untrue. Uh, I, I have heard this many times. Someone says something completely false about, oh, that pastor down the street. And then right behind it, someone else says, yeah, I know that's true. I've heard the same thing. Okay, so person number one says, I've heard this. So you don't know that it's true. You've just heard it. And the next person says, yes, it's absolutely true because I have also heard it. And when this says except from two or three witnesses, it's literally you have seen and witnessed and know these things to be true firsthand, and so don't you. People lie, and they say all kinds of things that are not true. We need to be people, especially if we profess to be Christians, who do not receive those things. Full stop. No. Uh, you're going to start saying something about that pastor in that church down the road, just stop. Uh, you, you know, have you experienced it? Is it true you've been involved with that situation? Or is this just the rumor mill and you're running your mouth? Because there is an enemy, right? If you believe there is a God, then you must believe there is a devil. And he wants to undermine the church. And he wants to say all kinds of things falsely. And he wants to accuse the brethren, right? The scripture records for us that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. All of these things that I'm describing, it's interesting to me, right? I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. We are all sinners. Every human being is a sinner. If people were just telling the things that I literally did, then I could just sit back and say, well, unfortunately, that is true. But all these things that I'm describing are all things that they've said that aren't true. Why? Because if they were describing the things that were true, everybody else would have to say, well, I do that too. That's how I am. I'm like that. I'm a sinner. They have to invent and create and say the most obnoxious things. That is why Paul says right here, don't even entertain it. Someone starts talking, you shut them down. You, you, you make sure that it is not true. You, sh you stop them from spreading those lies. Those who are sinning, rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. If a pastor is actually doing those things, then it should be made known publicly. People should be made aware. You know, the stuff that has been said over the years, it's crazy the things that have been said. Uh, different pastors, different churches, this church, me as a pastor, uh, all the things that have been spread around and said, the obnoxious gossip and rumors that have been perpetuated in our community. Not true. 
be wonderful if people took the time to see whether those things were true. And if they are true, then those people should be rebuked so that the whole world is afraid of being a pastor. If someone is going to, you know, undermine the church, split the church, uh, do things that are ungodly, they shouldn't be a pastor. They should be dragged out in the light for the world to see so that everyone would say, okay, stay away from that guy. And, you know, anybody that then considers being a pastor themselves that might fail in that way would also go, well, I don't want to do those things with my life. I don't want to fail in that way. Most of us in this room have probably had an, at least one occasion in our lives where a pastor we knew and we trusted and we looked up to failed miserably. And it'll train wreck your faith. I mean, what you were holding on to, what you were looking up to, suddenly was proven to be completely false. That is a really terrible thing. I... I had that experience. I saw it happen when I was younger, growing up around in and around churches. But as an adult, I had that happen one time. And I was years recovering from that. Years recovering from someone that I was depending upon spiritually failing that way. I know a couple of you in your situations and what you went through. It's a horrible experience. While Paul is saying... Do not listen to people that are bringing accusations that are false. He simultaneously says, if they're true, it needs to be made public. So this isn't a glossing over. This isn't Paul saying, oh, don't let people talk about pastors. He's saying there's a ton of false things said. Those people need to shut up. But if it is true, it needs to be brought out in the open for the whole world to know. He says in verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, meaning you have the demons which have fallen, but the elect angels are the ones that are obedient to God, that you observe these things without prejudice, do nothing with partiality. That, that's a tough call right there, right? You can go all the way back through what he said, but in particular, as he's talked about the elders and those who might fail, you know, the tendency might be, um, well, I really like this person, but now that they've fallen into sin, I just sort of want to brush it under the carpet and not let people know. Paul is saying, no, you need to make sure that you do not uh, judge on these cases using partiality. I really like this pastor. I don't want him to get in trouble, so I'm going to sweep it under the carpet. I, uh, I'm astonished, astonished to see there's a pastor from Bangor area who he went down in scandal years ago. Just had to admit he was caught and he had to admit that he was a chronic alcoholic, that by his own words, published in the Bangor Daily Newspaper, he said that he had been drunk almost every occasion that he had been in the pulpit. He had stolen more than $180,000 from the church, was forced legally to repay that to the church, left his position in shame. I'm not bringing it up because I enjoy talking about somebody else, but I see 
this week that he's the visiting pastor at a local church and going to be ministering there. Somebody that went down in disgrace and was totally shamed in the process and brought great disgrace to the name of the Lord. And he's going to be, you know, at a local church and ministering, and they've got it proudly proclaimed on their uh, sign up by the road. Show no partiality. It isn't a matter, you know, hear it again, right? Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Being a pastor is a hard line to tell. You are going to be scrutinized by the people that you are ministering to. And if you have failed, the world is going to be aware of it. It's a serious thing. Verse 22 is actually together with this when he says, Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Laying on of hands was ordaining someone. That was Paul took Timothy, raised him up, taught him the things of the ministry, laid hands on him, prayed over him and said to the church, this man is ordained by God to be your minister. This is now your pastor, young Timothy. Here you go. Don't lay hands on that. Don't do that quickly. Why? Because if this man falls into sin, then you having ordained him, it's going to reflect on you. Paul is saying to Timothy, you should not, I, I ordained you, Timothy, but you should not be hasty, quick to ordain anybody else because it might turn around and burn you in the process. You're going to share in other people's sins. That's going to come back on you. Important subject, he shifts gears. These are practical things, and we've just got a few minutes away. I want to touch on these last things. No longer drink only water but also a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. And a whole bunch of believers at this point go, great, awesome. Found a place in the Bible that says I can drink. I want you to notice a few things. Number one, Paul says, no longer drink only water. That's an indication that Timothy up to this point was drinking only water. So he's got a personal restraint, spiritually, that's keeping him only drinking water. Secondly, this take a little wine for your stomach's sake was the table wine of the day, which was three parts water, one part wine. And they did this to kill the bacteria in the water that they would draw up from the well. So it was a matter of Timothy is in this Middle Eastern culture where everybody does this. They bring the wine in, they're gonna, or the water they're going to cook with, and the water they're going to wash with, and then they take their drinking water, and they take two gallons of drinking water, and they put one gallon of wine in it and mix it all together so that the alcohol content kills the bacteria in the water. And then they drink that as their table wine. Timothy is so disciplined 
as a pastor and as a Christian that he's like, nope, I don't want any wine mixed in with my water. And as a result, the bacteria is making him sick. He has often infirmities. His stomach is messed up because he's got Montezuma's revenge. You know, the bacteria has taken over his intestinal tract and he's, you know, experiencing the pain and discomfort and everything that is associated with that. Paul's saying you need to mix the, the wine in with the water so that you don't have these, you know, upset stomachs that you're currently having. The, the fact that here Paul is commanding Timothy, it's okay for you to take a little bit of medicine. I've Have we... Maybe every one of us has been a zealous young Christian who's like, I'm not, I am so spiritual. I'm not even going to take Tylenol. I'm just going to pray and God's going to take this headache away. You could pray and then also take Tylenol, you know. <laughs> There's nothing about using medicine that equals being unspiritual. It's okay for you to use medicine when necessary. You want to pray and wait an hour? and see if the Lord just takes your headache away or your infirmity or whatever it may be, great. Let's all be that spiritual together. And, and I mean it. Let's do that. Let's let's go to the Lord first for answers. But he's also given doctors wisdom to provide for us treatments that help us. So it's okay to use, in this case, wine. The scripture is adamantly opposed to drunkenness. Opposed to it. Proverbs chapter 21 verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by it is not wise. That was me for years. Drugs and alcohol totally led my life astray for many years. I don't use them at all anymore. Completely uh, abstain from them. Now, he goes on to say in verse 24, some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. This fits together with verse 25, but I just want to break that down a little bit for us so we understand it. Sometimes you meet people and right away there's just something about them. You know, this is wrong. This person's messed up. I, you know, cannot trust this person. You know, we, we, the seventies, uh, they would say a thing like that. I got a bad vibe. Okay. Um, they did extensive research to see whether there was some, you know, psychic capability that we had. And what they discovered is that from infancy, we're studying human expression in such detail that when what is being said by speech with our mouth does not perfectly match the expressions of the face, the inconsistency tells us there's something wrong here. The greater the degree between what's being said and what the expression says, the farther apart those are, the easier it is to understand. Example, when the salesman charges into you, massive smile, big handshake, hey, glad to meet you, and that you know this is all insincere, right? The words coming out of their mouth don't match the expression of their face. They are selling me something. 
They want me to buy the car. They're said they want this. This is all a fake presentation. Some people are that exuberant, right? And they come charging up. Hey, I'm so glad to see you. Where have you been? I haven't seen you in so long. That's very sincere. And you don't have a problem with that. The inconsistency teaches you. Here, Paul is saying, at times, people's sin, young Pastor Timothy, will be very obvious. You're going to be able to see it right on the front end. Others, it's going to creep up on you. You're going to meet them. You're going to think everything's fine. You're going to find out later, no, this is trouble. Now read verse 25. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident in those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Some people you're going to meet. This this has more. His statement about the clearly evident, you know, the sin. Read again. The men's some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. Right. I describe that to you. Paul says it to Timothy. We all kind of go, yeah, I've had that experience. I thought so and so was an okay person, but it turns out. They stabbed me in the back. They burned me. I've had that experience. What Paul is driving him at is verse 25. He's saying it's the same way with good works. Some people are going to come through the door of the church and you're going to be easily able to identify, hey, this person is all about the faith, all about the ministry. Other people, you might think, eh, what's up with that guy? You watch them, and over time you're going to realize this person's actually really good. This person really does love the Lord. What he's saying is you shouldn't take that front-end experience and make judgments. Either way, over time you're going to realize who people are. James, in the book of James Chapter 1, verse 19 said, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear and slow to speak. We, we are much better off if we just accept people as they are, however they might be, and over time, you realize, you know, are they good? Are they bad? You don't, you don't have to have any kind of you know, for everything he said here about widows and these people and all these circumstances, he's saying, you can just do your job as a pastor, Timothy. You can just do your job as a Christian. And over time, you're going to realize how things are with people. You're going to be able to see things for what they really are. So just some good practical advice from Paul to Timothy to help him uh, in the ministry. So we'll we'll close out next week with chapter 6. For right now, why don't we pray? Father, I thank you uh, for your word, and I thank you for the practical writing of Paul, that we would uh, see the simplicity of the faith and the ministry. Help us to be men and women who take these things to heart and to live by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.